But in, in the long story short, no, I'm essentially a coward. And I think I'm a <laughs> coward possibly trying to prove something to myself by going off to do these sort of things. Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts, Charles Perry Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. Dom Jolly, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to see you. You strike me as someone, because of the amount of work you do and the different things you do, the different strings to your bow, that you, you're probably someone who has quite a busy mind. Um, and being a creative person myself, I, I suffer terribly from a busy night. And when I say suffer, I mean that it can sometimes impair sleep. And, uh, you know, I'm forever just wandering around daydreaming. I was wondering if you're, you, you're, you are a person with a busy mind. I think I do have a busy mind. Yeah, I'm a sort of shit polymath, I think is what I describe myself <laughs> as. I, I do lots of different things. You know, it's jack of all trades, master of none. I hate the idea that you're pigeonholed in something. Mm. So obviously I got famous through comedy and through Trigger Happy, which I love doing, and it's something I am just seem to be naturally good at. So I don't really see it as a talent. But um, but because of that, it's allowed me to do lots of other things, and I love doing all those different things. And I, I'm really bad at, at being not busy because I need something for my mind to to do. And actually, so things like the lockdown was a nightmare for me because it just mm. – uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I love being busy, and I love that. But the worst thing is having a busy mind and not being busy. And there are periods where, because I'm not in control of my life, uh, I have to wait for something to come to me. So I, I find myself all the time trying to create things so that I can be busy. But sometimes you just have to hope that this, you know, what I love about my life is that I can be at my lowest, and then suddenly an email comes out of nowhere. You know, like this, obviously, to do this podcast or you know, like <laughs> anything. You don't know what's going to happen. But on the other hand, it makes for real insecurity as well. And I think the older you get, you know, I used to thrive on that because I didn't give a shit. It was like, just go for it. But I think I'm. My mum died in January, and I, I think I'm now a full-on orphan. Like I don't have any parents. And and I think because I'm over fifty, I think uh, I feel mortal now. I don't know where this has gone with my busy mind, but there you go. That's my mind just racing all over the place. Yeah, I do have a very fast mind and unfortunately if i don't keep it busy on things uh it tends to think right well we're not busy so let's worry about stuff mm-hmm. so i think that's the that's the flip side of having a i think a good imaginative creative mind is that it can create uh bad things for you if you don't keep it busy if you don't keep it fed yeah absolutely and i'm sorry to, so sorry to hear about your mom and uh, right. be, being a fellow author myself um i mean creativity is something that I often dig into when I'm in you know particularly like you were saying about difficult moments and stuff and certainly around loss and grief it's it was it's always been a bit of a crux uh crutch for me um but yeah I think you're right I think I've been going through a period recently where I've been finding myself twiddling my thumbs and finding it very difficult in those moments when I'm trying to delve into new projects I don't know what you're you said you find it quite difficult sometimes when you're in those moments of downtime what what do you try and do to kickstart? I find it very difficult because I think the problem is, it's why I was talking about pigeonholing. I think once you're known as something, it's very difficult, you know, because I do a lot of travel writing. I'm on my fifth travel book. I think my travel books are really good. Uh, 
but I do also understand why people think, why is the big squirrel guy in North Korea? Like, what's that? <laughs> yeah. About? Um, yeah. And so it's sort of frustrating sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it, it's a lot more work than I need. Basically, I, I'd have had a much easier life if I'd have just stuck to what I'm known for and just sort of become an elderly prankster. Um, so it does mean that you have to sort of really fight, which in a way is really good because it keeps you hungry and it keeps you fresh, but it's fucking tiring sometimes. So what I do is exercise. Um, I have two dogs and I never used to understand walking. Um, for me, that whole English thing of let's go for a walk. It's like, where are we going? Well, we're not going anywhere. We're just going for a walk. It's like, what the fuck is the point of that? I need a destination. <laughs> yeah. And then I did my last travel book. Well, my second last travel book uh, was originally called the Hezbollah Hiking Club, but I had to change the name because I had about six readers arrested in various uh, airports in the Middle East because oh, thought, people thought they were holding some sort of Hezbollah training manual. But So it's called the Downhill <laughs> Hiking Club now. And in that, I walked across Lebanon. And that I that really gave me a love for walking, uh, which I think only really comes the older you get. You start to realize how valuable walking is. Walking's great because a it's exercise, keeps you fit. Uh, there's something amazing. If I'm stressed about something, I'll go for a walk. So when I'm writing my book, for instance, I'll get stuck on things, and you've been doing it for too long, and I'll just go for a walk. And when I come back, it's amazing. It's like everything just opens up. Uh, not always, but a lot of the time. And also I come up with a lot of ideas when I'm walking. Uh, and also I'm with my dogs, which makes me the happiest in the world. And I listen, I constantly listen to things in my mind, because otherwise, if I don't, when I go to sleep, I have talk on in my ear all the time. Otherwise, the voices, the real voices come. Uh, so yeah. when I walk, I listen. You don't want those. You don't want yeah, those. You don't want those. <laughs> when I walk, I listen to lots of podcasts and stuff, which again, is amazing. Like that, I just, my real pleasure. So if anyone's walking their Labradors in Pitville Park right now, listening to this podcast, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we can both relate to that, can't we? Do you find that being in nature sort of adds to that or is it just walking in general? Uh, yeah, that's interesting because actually I really love, because I do a lot of travel. One of my favourite things in the world is just getting lost in a town and I will disable my GPS uh, on purpose so that I have to physically try and remember things and find my way around a new city. But because a lot of my walking is with my dogs and my dogs are just terrible. Like they're not well-behaved dogs. Like people that have behaved dogs would not like my dogs. So I have to walk in the countryside. So there's two different types of walking there. I love urban walking because it's sort of people watching really in every aspect. Whereas nature tends to be not really about people. It's more about like, really like finding yourself and all that shit. <laughs> yeah, I, was <laughs> yeah. I haven't found myself ever yeah. sadly, so. <laughs> I find that as well because I live I literally live in the middle of nowhere in a cabin in the woods but every time Where I go out live? for a walk um I kind of live do you know the seven sisters um seven sisters country park with yes, the white cliffs yeah. yeah I literally live in the woods there so oh, okay beautiful area and I can go to the beach or go around the woods but every time I go for a nice walk in nature I've got my headphones in and I'm listening to some documentary or podcast about you know murder, like or, murder or ghosts yeah. and gorgons well, actually, or something. <laughs> but it's it's weird because actually one of the things you should get out of walking in nature one of the weird things about walking is that I do like listening to things but actually I think you're probably missing on a vast part of the nature experience you know, I'm not listening to birds cheeping and sheep doing whatever they do. 
but I don't care. I, I really like it. To me, it's like making your own soundtrack to your film, your your walk film. I don't know what that means, but yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because when you were talking about how you find it difficult to get to sleep at night, I have a very, very busy mind and I've always struggled with, you know, just being quiet and meditating and all stuff like that. But when I go to bed, I, I've learned to sort of harness it. And then when the thoughts come in, I sort of tailor them. So I almost create my own film. So it's like I watch a film to go to bed, but I'm the director and the, and, and you the, know, the, the producer and the star. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you're, um, you're creating something with your imagination. So I don't know if you've ever tried that but i highly recommend it's good fun well it's weird because i don't actually it's not that i can't sleep i can i literally just hit the hay and bang i'm out and i've always been able to sleep like with no problem at all but i was recently diagnosed with sleep apnea because i snore and sleep apnea means essentially that you're waking yourself up at least three times every 90 seconds and you're not getting any rem sleep and technically, you're, you're, if you carry on, you end up with brain damage. But it's very odd. The signs of sleep apnea are normally the sort of people that fall asleep at the wheel and, you know, like fall asleep in the day. And I, I, that wasn't me at all. So I, I don't quite understand it. But it's because when I grew up, I grew up in Lebanon in a civil war. And for comfort, we'd listen to the BBC World Service. And so I've always, always, there's always been like a radio on in the background it's like having radio four on or the cricket on or whatever and when i go to bed i think i think about stuff so much that i just turn put something on and i literally fall asleep in about 20 seconds but i have to have something but but it's in my ear all night and i sometimes wonder whether i osmose all these things i just like it'd be great if all the info that's going into your ear when you're asleep you take in and process. I don't think I do. I don't know. Maybe I, I should listen to Chinese radio or something and have, <laughs> yeah. like, just learn Chinese. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think if you were a regular sleeper and you went into that deep REM sleep, you probably wouldn't be taking anything in. But if you're constantly in that state of almost like hypnosis because you're kind of awake, kind of asleep, maybe I'd yeah. give it a go if I were you. Yeah, well, I probably will. But I mean, to be honest, I've listened to, you know, like I'm, I'm in years of stuff because I've done this since I was eight, like, so it hasn't really improved me. So I'm not sure. I think it might be too late. I don't know. It's really interesting about sleep apnea because my, my wife's going through testing at the moment for sleep apnea. Um, and very similar symptoms to you. She sleeps very well. She, she'll go to sleep very quickly. And, and it sounds like she's having a really solid sleep. But um, yeah, she, she has some problems with snoring and stuff. So um, you see the snoring uh, is really interesting because my wife used to grumble about the snoring. And of course, the snoring, it's not snoring. What you're doing, no. what you're doing is you stop breathing and you go, and that's you sort of waking yourself up. Uh, it, like literally sort of, you're, you're sort of resuscitating yourself about 40 yeah. times a night. So when I found out that I had it, I took a test and I wore a thing overnight and it told me that I was literally dead 90 times a night. It was very frightening. And if yeah. I carried on, I'd have like terrible strokes and stuff. So now I wear this machine, which luckily I'm a nose breather rather than a mouth breather. So it 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 looks awful. I mean, like if I go and stay at a hotel, I went, I stayed at the Groucho, uh, and I you have to hang this pipe up, and I've got my machine, and then I was changing rooms, and I went out. And they rang me and said we've got to change rooms. I said fine, just do it. And then they rang me back and said you've got some equipment there, and I think it was some, <laughs> it was some weird bondage shit that I'd set up. Um, but it is odd. I I definitely I, I find it easy to wake up now. Like I've always been found it very difficult to wake up. I think everyone does, but I, I, I 
So possibly I have a better quality of sleep. Also, I saved Adrian Charles's life because I went, I did a thing called Pilgrimage, which mm, is a terrible show. That, yeah. But I had, to, I had to walk from Belgrade to Istanbul, but in TV terms, so in a minivan with, uh, <laughs> with Edwina Curry and Adrian Charles and various other people. And Adrian Charles and I shared a room and he did that. And I said, you've got to go and get yourself checked out. And he did. And he had really bad sleep apnea. So I think I've saved Adrian Charles's life, which is a good thing, I think. I think it's a yeah. very good thing. And if, you if, might have, if, if you for no other reason than we can continue reading his Guardian column. which is- <laughs> <laughs> You might have saved many people's lives just by mentioning it on this podcast. Well, it is know. odd. I'd never heard of sleep apnea. And then the moment, you know, I couldn't even spell it because it's A-P-N-O-E-A. He's a, he's a People weird spell it the other yeah. way. But it's very odd. It's like when you're pregnant, not that I've been pregnant, but the moment you're pregnant, suddenly there's babies everywhere and stuff. And the moment I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, I started noticing people talking about it. Um, the guy in Sopranos has, uh, Tony in Sopranos has sleep apnea. Oh, really? Like, and you just start noticing it everywhere. It's very odd, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm, yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously we're going through that journey at the moment, says in, in inverted yeah. commas, the, the journey. Um, I think my wife will get diagnosed with it. Uh because I just think, and she's just so tired all the time. So I'd, I'd be well, interested good, to know if, it, if it's helped with that. Yeah, well, if she's tired, that's definitely that's definitely a, a reason for it. The good news is, firstly, these machines just sort it out, and the machines mm. are getting smaller and smaller. Soon you're just going to have a thing you clip on your nose. Yeah. But genuinely, one of the issues about it is snoring is a kind of comedy staple. Like, you know, yeah. snoring's funny, and it's like, oh, it's the snore. But actually, I don't want to freak anyone out if you snore, because if you snore, it's not necessarily that. But if you do snore very badly, especially if it's sort of sort of stuff, yeah. uh, you do need to go and get it checked out because it's not frightening. It will do you damage in the end, but you can get it totally sorted. So I would. Yeah, it's amazing how much sleep we need, how much we need sleep. You know, I mean, they talk about things. If you don't sleep for so, so many days, you you know, you have psychosis and all sorts I, of things. I went 72 days, 72 hours without sleep once oh, for something I was doing. And I started, I, I was hallucinating. I mean, it was, it was just terrible. It was like... It was insane. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, there you go. Um, so tell us a bit about your writing process, Don, because, I mean, writing's obviously been a big part of your life, and it's what you do a lot of now. When you're doing, yeah. like, the kind of travel I- writing, what's the process around it? Do you, do you just, are you just taking notes? Are you observing? You know, how, how does it work? Yeah. So I'm a really lazy writer. I've always, always been able to write really fast, and I love writing, and I grew up, in Lebanon where comedy was not really big on the agenda and and people I used to really admire were like travel writing you know we knew loads of foreign correspondents and I used to love travel writing so that was always what I wanted to do and I think travel writing in a sense is a cheat uh but it's why I love doing it because I literally decide I'm I'm it's gonzo writing I make Mm. myself the story uh and so literally I think so my new book for instance is uh called The Conspiracy Tourist in which I kind of think conspiracies used to be fun. They used to be like Bigfoot and, you know, did we land on the moon and stupid shit, but kind of interesting. And Mm. now it's just become the body politic and you've got, Mm. you know, presidents telling you to take bleach and just mental craziness online. And so I just thought there's no point fighting these people because I do fight them online constantly and you maybe win over one and then another hundred popper. I call it whacker cunt. Which sorry for the word, <laughs> uh, and it's it's just pointless. So I thought, and actually, I spoke to someone, and people who believe in conspiracies. I'll get to the writing in a minute, but people who believe in conspiracies, they tend to be like cult members in a sense. And if you attack them, 
they tend to withdraw into their bunker more. It's not a good way. So I thought, well, instead of fighting them, why not just go off and try and hang out with them with a vaguely open mind? I mean, I'm a total cynic and I kind of, some of them are so loop the loopy, it's pointless, but some things are interesting. And I thought, why not just go out there? So anyway, I, I just went off on a series of things. So I started easy. There's this very good pyramid uh, diagram done by this Dutch student, which basically shows the degrees of conspiracy theories. Starts off with easy stuff that probably did happen. Uh, and then it goes to slightly weirder, like, you know, did Paul McCartney get cloned in the Beatles? Then it moves up to slightly dangerous, you know, and then it goes to anti-Semitic nonsense and then racist madness where you end up thinking there's a global elite of paedophiles keeping children to use, you know, for cream or something. I mean, it's like insane. So I thought I'd go off and look at some of those. And the first one I saw that I loved was called, it said Finland does not exist. And I just thought that's so fantastic. So I looked it up and and it start, a lot of conspiracy theories start off as almost intellectual exercises. Someone's trying to be contrary. And then, and it's supposed to make you literally that awful word, critical thinking. It, you know, flat earthism, for instance, the same thing. It started off actually by some stoned philosophy student, uh, teachers sort of saying, what's the most ludicrous thing we can think of? And then prove me wrong. And so it makes you have to understand the globe earth theory to prove you wrong. But then, of course, what's happened now, that used to be fun and interesting. And we've now moved to sort of TikTok conspiracy, where people have just taken those ideas and thought they're true. So the Finland does not exist one was just a joke. Someone on Reddit said, what were the weirdest things your parents ever told you? And this guy said, he said, I don't believe it, but they told me that Finland doesn't exist. And the story is that supposedly in 1917, uh, Russia and Japan colluded because Finland is in, in the story of this conspiracy, just part of the Baltic. It doesn't exist, just see. But they wanted the fishing rights. And so Japan and Russia colluded to make up a country called Finland so no one would fish there, so they could fish. And then it got even better. All the fish taken would be transported under the guise of Nokia goods, which is very relevant to me with my big Nokia phone, because Nokia is a company that's been going since 1860 on the Trans-Siberian Express, and it would go to Japan. Now, it was a mental, it was a mental idea, but I thought, well, actually, that's a really good way to kick off the book, because one of the problems with conspiracy theories is you can't, if you are a conspiracy theorist, you become so you're so obsessed with it. You've got all these facts, whether they're right or wrong. As me, I can't argue with them. I don't have those facts. to. Think. So it's very difficult. So I thought, actually, it's a really interesting way to see if you could prove a negative. Like, if I went to Finland, how can I prove Finland exists? And and so I sort of went off. And my poor wife, who never goes traveling with me, because normally I go traveling on my own. I have my adventure. I get in trouble. I write all my notes on my notes on my iPhone. And then when I get home, I email them to me. So when I come back from, say, I did a road trip across America from Denver to Ros to Austin, looking at places like Roswell and stuff, and I'll send myself my notes. So when I get back, I've got 15,000 words sitting there, and that's the basis that I then do my chapter from. So it's really easy, and I write fast. But Finland was fucking tricky. My poor wife never comes normally uh, on my trips, and she said, I'm coming. You know, kids are gone. So I said, fine. She said, where are we going? And I said, Finland. And the look of disappointment on her face. <laughs> and literally, I spent my whole time thinking, actually, it's impossible to prove Finland exists because you land in an airport and it says, welcome to Helsinki. 
you speak to the passport control. I go, where am I? And they go, Finland. And I go, yeah, but you're probably yeah. in on it. You know, like if this <laughs> yeah. is a conspiracy, I look at my maps. Well, that's owned by Bill Gates. You know, like, so if you get into a conspiracy mindset, like how do you fucking prove anything? So that, so I've got a very long convoluted way. Away, but essentially how I write is I go off, I have an adventure. I love it. And I write notes all the way. And then when I come back, I've got my notes and then I write from that. And so it's cheating, really, because I do make myself the the story. Mm. No, I think it's, uh, that makes perfect sense. It's just such a fascinating topic. And I, I'm just so excited for your book to come out, Dom, because it's right up my street. I find just from a psychological perspective, conspiracy theories, is it's just so fascinating. And I, it is, I guess... It, it is oh, fascinating. It's an illness. It really is an illness. It's mm. very weird. And I, I kind of, uh, I think the thing I learned about conspiracy theories is that it's, I think the the two things I learned is that basically people seem to, I think it's a human condition that people, especially at the moment when everyone feels a bit powerless and everyone's losing control of stuff a bit and shit is happening badly. People kind of think I need some reason for it. We need to, have a reason this is happening. It can't just be, there's a great quote by as big new Brzezinski, who was uh, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, which is basically that most of history uh, comes from chaos rather than any sort of uh, people, people hate to think that these massive things just happen by chance, but having I've met quite a lot of important people and occasionally bumped into the odd leader and stuff. And you think, most of these people can't organize a decent traffic system. Like they're not organized enough to be like international evil. So yeah, conspiracy theories are, but I, I kind of love them because they're kind of so odd, you know, and, and you can have a, I don't think there's ever been an event in the world that hasn't had a conspiracy theory attached. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? Um, oh, good question. Uh, see, I was saying uh, before we jumped on this call, Don, that I'm quite open-minded to stuff. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. But at the same time, sometimes I hear these crazy stories and I'm like, well, you never know. <laughs> quite quite well, open-minded. Because people, are, you know, like I always ask, like, has a conspiracy theory ever proved to be true? And people will say things like, uh, there's a, there's a, Oh God, I completely forgot it. It's um, there there, there was there was basically a, a ship in north uh, in the sort of off the shore of Korea that the U.S. said was attacked by the North Koreans, and they used that as a as a, an excuse to invade Korea during the Korean War. Now people often say that was a conspiracy, but it turned out to be true. Now I wouldn't say that's a conspiracy. That's just dirty tricks played by governments. And then similarly, one of the problems of conspiracy theories is that. You know, anti-vaxxers annoy the shit out of me because they're just mental. But that's not to say that massive pharmaceutical com pharmaceutical companies have not behaved appallingly. Of course they have, cigarettes and all sorts of stuff. But it's the idea that everyone is evil. Everyone is constantly up to no good. It's ridiculous. Uh, and you've got to have some... I don't know what what it's all about. It's very frightening, the whole thing. And people like Russell Brand have just completely... It, these are all people who've watched The Matrix uh, and think it's real. It's really, that's what it comes down to. It's all this well, red pill, blue pill shit. Yeah, well, that, and that's the thing that um, intrigues me most in recent years. And obviously because of the, the, you know, since the dawn of the internet, like these things have spread 
very rapidly but the fact that it has become so mainstream you know we've seen with like you you alluded to earlier with uh you know u.s presidents um kind of espousing strange and weird kind of conspiracies and then having the you know the people that sort of espouse um conspiracies in, in the u.s like alex jones have the ear of the president i mean the, the well, fact that it's become so mainstream yeah. is, is is more is, is is one of the reasons why it's so bizarre well there are two there are, there are sort of three elements to it firstly the internet is i mean in the old i joke in the book that in the old days every village had an idiot but now all those, all those idiots can can contact each other uh, and and the internet is a massive 911 seems to be a massive moment uh where it kind of conjoined with the internet really starting to kick off and youtube so suddenly people were making all these films about how 911 was faked and how it was all uh it, it was interesting i was talking to an old conspiracy theorist a guy who was a really strong conspiracy theorist and then he uh he basically jumped ship and he's now stopped being a conspiracy theorist and now he tries to help people get out of it and he made a really interesting point that in the original conspiracy theorists they were kind of apolitical and they were actually progressives they were people that felt that uh stuff was happening because it was basically governments using things whether you believe 9-11 was faked or not and it wasn't but you know 9-11 was used as a pretext to invade Iraq like that's a sort of geopolitical strategy he said what changed in about 2012 was when uh steve bannon suddenly said let's politicize the gamers and they realized there's this massive uh group of people that didn't give a shit about politics and they literally they used that kellyanne conway thing alternative facts it's like they started making these videos and saying this is the truth and suddenly it's become nastier and nastier and it's become very right wing and like now if you look at anyone who's espousing some weird conspiracy you can see they tick boxes on all the other ones so it's definitely changed but the internet is a massive part of it suddenly you can make stuff there are no facts anymore like and it's a very american thing there's a very anti-expert thing in america which comes from them being a rebel country and and sort of mistrusting the government now they mistrust elites and by elites, they mean scientists and people who've done proper work and stuff. It's crazy. The whole thing's very odd. Yeah, I wonder if, um, speaking of America, I wonder if uh, situations like MK Ultra and stuff that turned out to actually be true have kind of almost thrown fuel on the fire. Like, see, we told you, you know, ever, you know, this has happened. So why? Because on on the outside, if you look at something like MK Ultra. And most people will probably think, oh, no, that's ridiculous. That, that couldn't possibly happen. And then, you know, similar with QAnon, all this nonsense, there's probably people out there that are like, well, that you know, you wouldn't have thought that MKUltra could have happened and look what happened there. So I wonder if that's kind of in- but, making people but more enthusiastic. But that's that's the that's the problem with conspiracy theories is that it's the, it's the, it's the theory that if, it, if, if one person has behaved badly, that everyone is. It, it, it has a very negative view of humanity and uh it's very odd just these leaked uh the the leaked whatsapps from from matt hancock you know there's a bit of him actually saying uh you know we have to uh, let's delay the the, delay the postpone the the announcement of one thing for something else now that's him let's scare them and basically that's him because he's 
desperately trying to get people to get vaccinated. It's not working. So they're trying to find out ways to make people do it. Now, that sounds very dodgy. And it is. Matt Hancock's a fucking idiot. And he couldn't run a bath. But that doesn't mean it's a massive conspiracy. It's just, I, I don't know, the whole thing is very, very strange with that. And also, you've got to ask, what is a conspiracy? Because some things that people describe as, oh, we see that happen, and that's a conspiracy theory. It's not. It's just dirty tricks, or it's a government behaving badly. You know, like UFOs, a lot of UFO sightings were clearly Area 51 uh, American secret military planes that they wanted to keep secret, and suddenly all these idiots thought it was UFOs. And you're like, brilliant. Much prefer they say it's UFOs, and people (laughs) won't, like, concentrate on us. But, you know, that's the problem. No one is denying that there are evil crooked people doing evil crooked things absolutely no question there's no question that epstein knew a lot of uh very rich people and he did use with a lot of those very rich people they used to meet up and shag underage girls and that's an appalling thing but to jump from that to say that there is an international pedophile ring including hillary clinton that hide children in tunnels around the world is fucking nuts so it's it's that jump from it, there's always something there's always a basis of truth in a consp- especially in a good conspiracy theory and sometimes they're bang on but I I I can't think of a single conspiracy theory that has become absolute fact there's always been tiny bits that were true but not to the extent it is it's a very I'm dreading this book coming out because I'm just going to be bombarded <laughs> bombarded oh, by God. nutters but you yeah know. i mean we are we are storytelling creatures aren't we humans and it goes back to what you were saying we desperately need some reason for everything which is probably why we have you know like religions and people have their faith and stuff which is great when it's used in a positive way but essentially we hate to have our reality rocked we hate to think that stuff goes wrong and stuff is happening for literally no reason um i was just wondering when you were kind of doing your research for your book did you i mean i, I presume <laughs> you had Reverie. It is, it is. It's you know hard hitting journalism. This is. Well, I was wondering if you you know when you came across these people like you know flat earthers and stuff like that. Did you find yourself in any way kind of relating to them on a human level and kind of empathising with where they were coming from from and why? Yeah. So flat earthism is really interesting because flat earthism is the butt of all jokes. Really, like it, you know, it is the kind of the the most loony uh, conspiracy theory out. And actually, I. I met two flat earthers and they were very different. So the first flat earther I met, I went down because I've always heard about flat earthers, but it's very hard to believe that there actually is a guy that's going to look you in the eye. And it normally is a guy uh, looks you in the eye and says, I believe the earth is flat. And you're like, well, what? You haven't been up in a hot air balloon light and seen the curve. And and, and anyway, I, I went to Glastonbury because I thought not the, not the festival, the town. I thought I'm definitely going to meet someone there. Took me two hours. <laughs> Took me two hours for someone to give me the number of a bloke called Jacob. And they said oh, he's wow. the guy. So I ring Jacob and he's totally up for chatting to me. And he arranges to meet me in a cafe and he says, You'll recognize me. I'll be wearing an Afghan hat, which anywhere else would be fine. But in Glastonbury, like everyone is wearing an Afghan hat. So he turns <laughs> yeah. up and he looks like Roger Waters from Pink Floyd if he'd joined the Mujahideen. And he sits down opposite me and he's the sweetest man. He really is. And he's not. And I say, so you're a flat earther. You believe the earth is flat. Not a joke. You're not trying to be a contrarian. He goes, yes, I do. And uh, he said, I don't believe your ball earth theory, which is what we are. We're either globetards <laughs> or ball earthers. 
Oh wow! And, uh, <laughs> we had terms. Oh, that's good. Wow! Nice to know that, though. Well, that's yeah, my that's my that's my range of merch globe tars. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, oh, and, yeah. and uh, so anyway, I had a long chat with him, and I really liked him. And what I liked about him, he wasn't trying to convince me. He wasn't like uh, he wasn't uh, he didn't have missionary zeal. He just said he'd been to a couple of talks, and he thought about it, and he said, firstly, you have to really learn about baller theory to disprove it. So he did a lot of He's kind of, he was quite obsessive and he learned a lot about the, the classic theory. Uh, and then uh, and then he went off and started, and he lost me slightly. He said he started going to beaches and putting down a, a, a camera on a tripod. And supposedly there was a beach seven miles away that if there was a curvature of the earth, you shouldn't be able to see. But with this big zoom, he could see the beach. And then he used to watch. I mean, honestly, he just was talking and I was just, yeah. at the back of your mind, you're like, I'm sorry, you're fucking mental. But it wasn't. And he believed in an ice wall around the earth. And he started telling me how he'd flown to Beijing once. And it was weird. He hadn't flown over the Arctic and all planes go through the Middle East because that's the center of the earth. And he sort of, he just bounced from weird theory to theory. But I, I genuinely felt he believed it. And I genuinely felt he kind of, he was someone that just genuinely refused to, to, he said it was like, you grow up with this. Like, it's like living with mum and dad. That's what you've been told. And he he liked the idea of leaving mum and dad and thinking for himself. And that was fine. I think his idea is wrong, but I liked him. And then I flew to Newfoundland. And if you, so flat earthers are round flat earthers, right? But there's a, there's a splinter group who are square flat earthers, that the air is square and flat. Now, if you're a square flat earther, then there are four corners of a square flat earth. And those four corners are the island of Hydra in Greece, uh, the Bermuda Triangle, somewhere in Papua New Guinea, and an island called Fogo in Newfoundland. So I went to Fogo. And when I was in Newfoundland, we we asked around and we met this this, uh, flat earther. And he came with us to the edge of the world. And he was just totally fucking loopy. We made us go out in a boat. And we went out in a boat towards the edge of the world. And then he started screaming at the captain when we didn't get there, saying that he'd been going around in circles and that he was <laughs> part of the part of the global conspiracy. I mean, it was just fucking mental, the whole thing. But I loved it. It was sort of glorious. But you can't argue, you can't argue with him because I go, what about NASA? You know, what about the photos you've seen? He goes, those are all faked. NASA's in on it. Yeah. Uh, what about the moon? Like, you can see the moon. That's round. He goes, no, you can see it's circular, but we don't know it's a, you know, it's just, it's insane. It blows your mind in the end. But it's fun. I was going to say, I was going to say, Dom, uh, uh, do you, have you found from your travels that people that who, who are maybe a conspiracy theory, um, sorry, a, a, someone who's into conspiracy theories in, in one particular area is susceptible to, conspiracies in other areas like they they have a multitude of conspiracies that they're absolutely 100 percent. it is a rabbit hole and once you're down it because because what you were saying earlier actually about religion is very true it is an ideology and and it's something that you really start to believe and not only do you start to believe it but it starts to shape your world because you start to hang out with people that believe in it online and then in real life and then it becomes your identity it becomes your thing and it there's a really strong thing in conspiracy theorists. They kind of, especially with people, and I'm not being rude when I say it, but who feel kind of powerless and maybe they're having a tough life. There's this feeling that they have special knowledge. You know, they know something and it gives them a feeling of worth and power 
which I totally get. Like we all want that, you know. But their their whole world starts to become. It's a bit like when you're religious, you know, you go to church and all your friends are from the church. And so if you suddenly decide to leave, you're not just leaving and deciding, oh fuck, the earth is round, but you're leaving all your friends and your 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 raison d'être. Really, it's a it. That's why it's so difficult to get people out of it, and that's why the right wing in 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 America have found these people so useful because once they're on board you know that's their identity and if you can link that to a political party and make them vote away it's great one of the things i was interested in why i went to glastonbury was a thing called conspirituality which is the the sort of venn diagram mix between sort of new age thinking crystals and shit and then suddenly flat earthism and anti-vaxxing and stuff and that's kind of an interesting uh mix as well yeah that's quite i think that's quite common especially with the anti-vaxxers uh in the sort of new age community people that that tend to be a bit more well hippie i guess um i've noticed quite a lot uh quite a lot of them don't tend to be into the idea of having vaccines as well that's interesting well you but get, vaccines but, is the most yeah. interesting one because vaccines is interesting firstly because you know there is a point there like uh, you know, major pharmaceutical companies are making money out of the vaccine. Not all of them, but some are. And pharmaceutical companies have behaved badly. So I get why people wouldn't want that. But actually, there's a very interesting crossover between flat earthers and new agers in that new agers tend to be hippies, essentially, whereas flat earthers tend to be very uh, quite hardcore scientific thinking types, even though they're so they're not new agers. Uh, so actually, I, I can the guy I met in Glastonbury, I assume, was an, a crystal head as well. But no, no, he he thought that was all nonsense. But the Earth, was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what was great. brilliant, it's so true. It's just so my book really. It, I, I kind of was gonna go and have a go at everyone because it makes me angry because I do think vulnerable people get taken up by this, especially with things like vaccines, and it's dangerous. You know, like. People going around, there was a guy going around my town putting stickers everywhere saying the pandemic is a lie, you know, and I had someone in hospital, a friend on a fucking ventilator and that pissed me off. But in the end, my book wasn't that because I'm not, I get angry on Twitter and I'll argue with people, but I'm not really, what I really hate, actually, the conclusion from my book is that I really mistrust anyone who's certain about things. And actually, conspiracy theorists are certain and I've never been certain of anything. I'm pretty certain the earth is round, but but I'll listen. And I, it's not like my, it's not what drives my life. So yeah, it's it's about people with certainty. I mistrust, I like politicians who say, you know what, I don't know, or I've changed my mind or, and that's supposedly the worst thing you can do in politics. It's very mm. weird. Yeah, I guess there is a, something to be said about the fact that these conspiracy theorists the theories that they believe in become their identity, whereas the you know the people that believe that actually the Earth is sort of spherical or whatever, it's not really something you ever think about, is it? You just kind of think, no, that's kind of what I believe. But if in you know twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred years, scientists find out otherwise, then whatever, cool. Because you know at the end of the day, it's not, it's not really going to affect my life either. If that if it did suddenly change, except one of the beliefs is that Australians are all holograms. Uh, <laughs> oh amazing I kind of I've hope that one's some, true <laughs> I've met some weird Australians so it's possible I don't know yeah it is it is the whole the whole thing so weird so my book is essentially just a a travel book but I just I'm just I'm I'm a tourist like I'm just traveling through these weird things and kind of 
finding the funny in it. But I, I hope it's not too mean. Uh, in fact, I don't think I am mean. I, I liked a lot of them, actually. Uh, I did think their ideas were wrong, but I just, I, I didn't, I only found a couple of people that I thought, especially around the sort of QAnon area and the anti-vax, actually, where I not only thought your ideas are actually dangerous, but I think you're grifters. I think you're doing it. Mm. Even you know that's bollocks. And that's what I really hate. Well, I was going to say, because I've looked at the chart, the conspiracy charts, and as you get higher up the chart, as you know, you get the more, I guess, the, um, the, the more wildly exaggerated conspiracies and the ones that are more bizarre. Yeah. There does seem to be a crossover into a monetary uh, or you know like a transactional thing with with people that follow you know those kind of people and you you're getting into the territory of the david well, people have realized that yeah i mean david ike and even what i mean alex jones in the book i actually just before he got done for a billion dollars i hated alex jones so much because what well, again one of the guy i spoke to who is an ex-conspiracy theorist he said what he really hated was the change between when he believed in conspiracies with 9-11, whatever you thought about it, it definitely happened. It's just whether it happened, uh, whether the government kind of helped someone do it because it helped their political agenda or not. He said, but suddenly you were getting into the this thing where school shootings didn't happen and uh, all the kids were, were crisis actors and the parents, I mean, can you imagine your kid being shot in a school shooting and then to be hounded on the internet so much so you have to move house by people saying you're an actor, you're being paid. I mean, I couldn't fathom that. And people like Alex Jones have taken that and monetized it. And I think that is the lowest form of human existence. So I, I chased Alex Jones around Austin, Texas, and in the end managed to break in to his gated community and got to his door. But there was a gentleman there with a very large handgun. And at that stage, I did my sort of Louis Theroux bumbling British guy and left. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is crazy though how involved Americans get in sort of like you know with the that Hampstead um, conspiracy theorist where oh, everyone have was, you heard that? Yeah, it's have you crazy. Listen to that podcast. Yeah, At the Hampstead hoax. It's, is that it? It's uh, unbelievable. Hoax. I I didn't know anything about that, and that yeah. that's ruined people's lives. Oh yeah. God, Pe yeah, people and have it's had all to this move weird house. guy living in Marrakesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also the American yeah. guy that ended up getting involved as well, and and flew over to England to to sort of like stoke the fire. And it makes you wonder why do you care? Like I cannot think of a single thing happening. You know, obviously if if something terrible happens on the other side of the world, you know your heart goes out to those people, and you can do what you can to help. But I've never heard of some small event happening in a tiny little town in the middle of America and thought, you know what, I have to have my say in this. I'm going to fly over. And it's absolutely bizarre. I've done that. <laughs> but I do that. <laughs> you know, like I'll hear something weird's happening in the town. I think, great, I'm going to go and write about it. But I'm not going to go and put my two pence in. Like I'm not getting involved. But that's the internet, you know, because the internet, the world's a village now. And so if you're in that, conspiracy uh sort of friendship group something happening in Hampstead it's the same as something happening in Paris Texas you know it's it's all part of a global satanic whatnot <laughs> yeah yeah it's bizarre yeah Dom you've always struck me as someone who's and you might not think this but I, it comes across in in your work a, a risk taker I mean going back to what you did with trigger happy and then i know before that you were doing you were like doing political like news production and you were you were doing setups with with um mps and stuff and 
then you obviously moved into trigger happy and then doing your books and stuff do you do you feel like you're a risk taker do you feel br- i know this might sound like a strange thing to ask you but you know you need a certain amount of courage and uh, and bravery to kind of take on these you know obviously in this book you're taking on conspiracy theorists but in general just taking on the subjects that you do No, it's really funny. I think one of my real, uh, certainly in my travel writing, I think one of my real advantages is I'm a coward because I grew up in a war uh, where I was terrified all the time as a kid. And my dad fought in the Second World War as a as a fighter pilot. And he, you know, he, he to me was always, he flew in the Pacific. He was always like, fuck, he was in a war. And I ended up doing, you know, my first book, The Dark Tourist, I went off to places I wanted to go to that people wouldn't normally go to on holiday so I went to North Korea and I went to skiing in Iran and I thought you know I'm in these I went to the killing fields in Cambodia and I think I'm not only not even in this conflict but I'm actually following in the footsteps of my heroes that were journalists so I'm kind of third removed from where it is so no I think I go to a lot of places that sound like they're very dangerous but actually growing up in Lebanon everyone thinks oh you're very brave growing up there but actually I was going skiing in the morning and the beach in the afternoon, and there's lots of good things there. So I like going to places that people are put off by, but I'm basically a coward. The only place I went to where I was totally out of my depth was Congo, and I went to the Congo when I was monster hunting, and I went to the north of Congo to a lake called Lake Tele, where there's there's this monster called the Michaelian Bembe. And I, anyway, it all went to shit. I went down a river in a canoe. It was a proper Tintin adventure. Three days, got to this village, and then it all went pear-shaped. They all got drunk, and I was tied to a tree. And I was just like, fucking hell, I'm so out of my out of my depth here. So that stuff, I'm only brave in that, fuck, I've got to get out of it. All my comedy stuff, I never saw that as brave. I've I've always just been able to, I like an argument. I like fronting up. And I, I, I you know, in my private life, I'm not, crawling around Cheltenham dressed as a snail, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty normal, although I like a fight. I like an argument. My wife would say I'm fairly confrontational, but um, so I don't think of it as brave. I just assumed everyone could do it. When I started, I was a researcher on the Mark Thomas comedy product and no one else could do stuff. And so I just said, Oh, I'll do it. And then I slowly realized that for whatever reason, I, it's just something I can do. So I've never seen it as a talent. It's just something I'm born with. And I, I kind of like doing so it's a very unbankable skill, really. It's quite weird. But in, in the long story short, no, I'm essentially a coward. And I think I'm a coward possibly trying to prove something to myself by going off to do these sort of things. But I'm, all, I'm always fairly sure I'm not going to be harmed, otherwise I wouldn't go. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, speaking as someone that goes out of their way to avoid confrontation, I think there is... There seems to be a sort of bravery in the fact that you're quite comfortable with confrontation. Or is that just being a wanker, though? I mean, it's like, I don't know. All that. <laughs> yeah. There's a fine line, I think. It's a fine line. I think it's a very fine line, yeah. But as a creative, I think, you know, I feel like, you know, trying new things, <clears throat> and obviously you do your Twitch, and you've done, you know, writing, and you've diversified your creative um, life. Well, I've had to. I've had to, really. I mean, I. It, it's really weird like I mean I trigger happy happened by mistake I never planned to be a comedian and then I made the show and I genuinely think it was a great show like I put everything of my life into that and I kind of once I'd done trigger happy and we sold the show to 80 countries and it was pretty perfect and I stopped it at 14 shows I thought I kind of knew I'm never going to better that in comedy so much as I enjoy doing comedy I thought right I'd like to do something else and and it seems 
it's very odd. People don't like you to jump around. I always wanted to be a writer. So Trigger Happy allowed me to start writing columns and then travel writing for the Sunday Times and then my books. But I think there's still a sort of travel, you know, publisher or readers, serious readers will be going, you're not a writer, you're a squirrel. And the people who, when I was doing uh, prank stuff, would be like, oh, he can't write. So I don't know. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit annoyed with that because I love doing different things. And I started doing live stuff that I'd never done before. Um, I'm about to do a podcast because I'm the last person in England at a podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, no, yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, and also I got to pay the rent, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. Caitlin the, Moran the... said, "Bitch, got to pay rent." You know, like. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a bravery, I think, in in pursuing a, a career in the creative field and not just going out and getting an office job. Because at the end of the day, it would be the easiest thing in the world to just think, "Oh, do you know what? A regular paycheck would be lovely." And yeah, just but I didn't. I didn't think about that when you're young and you've got not that many responsibilities and you don't have kids. You think, who gives a shit? I remember thinking, oh, look at that. They're all going to work. I'm not me. I don't have to wear a suit. And it's great. And you think, whatever happens, I'll just do something else. I'll use my brain. But actually, when you get old, fuck, it starts to worry you, the creative life. Because suddenly you think, I've only got a certain amount of waves left. And you would it would be nice to have regular money coming in or whatever. On the other hand, if I hadn't spent any, I've spent all my money. I've earned shitloads of money. And I've spent it all. And I've had a brilliant life. But if I if I had saved, squirreled all my money away, I wouldn't be doing anything creative now at all. The good thing about about penury and failure uh, is that it makes you hungry, and that's creatively the most important thing. So it's good in that way. Although you know, I'd quite like to be lying on a beach, but I'd get bored. Yeah. yeah 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 no there's yeah and there's definitely um something to be said about people may, not not necessarily creatives I think creatives have a bit more understanding of the process but definitely the people that consume your work have a feeling of you know you need to stay in your lane and and I find it as an artist I always have a fear of bringing out a new collection or or veering away from what I typically do do because I oh god people are gonna be like why is she doing that you know why is she doing a podcast why is she doing a, writing a book whatever it might be um so yeah I, I definitely uh, I, I always break that. it break it. I think it's a very English thing as well I break it down into musical stuff it's it's the Radiohead v Coldplay complex now I, I happen to love Coldplay I'm not gonna slag off Coldplay because I really do like them but Coldplay are people that got massively successful and then thought well we'll just keep doing the same thing and keep getting even more massively successful Radiohead are the classic we became massively successful we have a slight sort of British guilt about it and also a sort of slightly punk ethic of like, oh, have we sold out? And then they spend a lot of time trying to alienate most of their listeners. You know, are you a real fan? You know, like, let's yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But at least they stayed in music. You know, like I've gone yeah. completely fucking to other things. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good thing, though. And some people, you know, like there's the 10,000 hours thing, isn't there? So if you're an artist... Like the better you get, the more you do at your stuff, you're going to be amazing. But on the other hand, there's part of you going, well, I want to do something else. Yeah. And people are like, yeah. no, but I like that, you know. Well, Fuck there's them. the the counter argument to that I've heard is instead of doing 10,000 hours, you should do 10,000 experiments, which See, I, love I guess that. you've done. So that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the difference between, that's what I've done. So, But that's when you become jack of all trades, master of none. And that's, it's like microdosing. You know, either do a massive amount of LSD or just microdose every day. I don't know, but... Uh, that's really interesting. So I'm definitely the 10,000 experiments. 
Yeah. But one of those needs to pay off. <laughs> yeah, I'll hear you on that. Well, um, yeah. that's all it takes. Just yeah, it's all it takes. Um, yeah. Dom, honestly, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for indulging us on the conspiracy theory stuff because that is something that we, we talk about quite a lot. Anyway, and I, going back to your point on the favourite conspiracy theory, I think having watched the film so many times, JFK is probably up there for me. Um, I, I thought, so I've, you know, I've, yeah. I've, I've, been to, I've been to JFK for two of my books, actually, because I'm obsessed with it. And, and when you get to Dallas and you walk into Dealey Plaza, it is fucking extraordinary. Like, you come around the corner and you think, it's like when you first go to New York. It's like, oh, my God, I've been here before. Like, it's everything is there. And my favourite thing in Dealey Plaza, of course, is when you get there, you see the grassy knoll and you see where Zapruder stood and you go up to the to the Texas Book Depository. But my favourite thing is right on the street where the actual bullet, the, the final bullet, wherever it came from, it came from the Book Depository, but hit... Uh, JFK someone's drawn a cross on the road and and you think this whole place is gonna be like a, a a sort of national park a national monument it's not it's a busy street in Dallas so everyone waits till the lights go red and then you get all these dark tourists running out standing on the cross sort of getting getting their <laughs> really? selfies it's a very very weird place but it's an amazing place to visit oh well there you go yeah I'd, I'd, I'd love to visit yeah that's because yeah, I like I say that I've only because I've seen the movie quite a few times but um it's a very interesting one. Maybe, maybe the spawn of of a lot of other conspiracies. You know, yeah, Americans sort of. That love. was definitely the first time someone saw something happen because it was filmed. That's yeah. that's what was so powerful about that. It was incredible. Is it like the man with the umbrella and all stuff like that? I'm just gonna. Oh, there's there's thing. so many theories. It's insane. I mean, yeah, people think the mafia did it. The the Russians that it was suicide. The Muppets did it. You know, like it's yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've got to go, guys. Because yeah, yeah, no, thank you, too. Dom. Yeah, no, we we have to. So, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thank yeah, you very thank much. You. That was really fun. I hope I didn't waffle. I did waffle a lot. No, not no, not at all. No, it was amazing. All right. Yeah, thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.